All right, let's get started. Good evening. Welcome to Pen Talk, the podcast. This is episode number 13. My name is Brendan Penn, and I'm coming to you live from Baltimore County, Maryland. And I hope wherever you are joining us from, you are safe and comfortable and healthy, and that you find the space that we're in together now also safe and comfortable. Uh, we're streaming live on Facebook on Pen Talk, the podcast page. So please share the podcast and follow the page. You can also listen to all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Overcast, all, diff all different uh, podcast streaming websites. And you can also listen to all of the episodes, get all the Padlets that we collect resources on, and all of our video episodes, which we only have three or four so far, but that's okay. Um, you can find that on our website, pentalkpodcast.wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E, dot com slash home um, for all of our previous episodes and so today you know there's a lot going on it is august 2nd it is about 7 30 p.m on the east coast and so we've had a lot going on this week um and you know going on but you know today august 2nd is james baldwin's birthday and he was a famous american poet essayist writer playwright narrator orator i mean he, he was just an amazing um, literary figure in American history. And so I just wanted to open up today's show and just talk a little bit about his life, his work, his thoughts, and how they've inspired me as an educator and me as a person. Um, first, I'll say that I didn't really, I wasn't exposed to James Baldwin growing up in, in, in my academic settings. He wasn't a scholar that I read in high school when we were reading those sort of James Joyce and you know reading the, those famous American authors. James Baldwin was not one of them. And so I really, you know, gained more exposure to him, you know, my college career and my more of my teaching career. Um, but he was a, an American writer. He was born in 1924 in Harlem, New York. Um, he had a large family. And as a teenager, he became a preacher and he followed into the, in the foots of his stepfather. And so from ages 14 to 16, he, you know, had a little congregation. He would preach, you know, routinely. And his love of writing and reading also added to his sort of early cultivation of becoming a strong voice and sort of a, you know, practicing those tools. He separated from the church as he grew up and really started to affirm his identity, not just as a black male, but also as a black homosexual male as well. And sort of the racial divisions and the religious, religious intolerance of the church uh, really caused him to sort of separate um, but at the same time, after graduating high school, he had a large younger family to take care of. Um, he had got an eighth sibling on the same day that his stepfather passed away. And so he worked many odd jobs throughout his early teens to you know, try to support his family. He worked on the railroad, but the racial oppression that he experienced just trying to maintain and survive in the early 1930s and 40s was just which is awful, and so he decided to move to Paris, France on a fellowship scholarship to write. And so that's where he published his first book, The Child on the Mountain, which gave him some literary fame and was really about a young man growing up in Harlem grappling with father issues and his religion. I mean, that's a story. I've heard the phrase, Go Child on the Mountain, but I've actually never read the story. I, I'm not familiar with it, and it's not anything that was um, presented to me in formal education settings. Um, anybody that's with us tonight, have you ever read Go Tell on the Mountain or were you experienced to have James Baldwin in your high school or even collegiate academic career? 
I will take your silence as no. And, I, and so that, that's something that we've been talking about um, quite often, you know, as we talk about teacher prep programs. Yeah, as we talk about teacher prep programs, you know, uh, diversifying some of the authors and some of the thought leaders that we have. Erica, you want to jump in? No, I was going to say, I forgot to raise my hand. No, I, I, um, I took a lot of literature classes in college and I went to an HBCU. So yes, I had James Baldwin and one of his contemporaries is Richard Wright, who wrote Black Boy and Native Son. So um, yeah, we talked a lot about James Baldwin, Richard Wright, and, and Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man. So yes. And so that that's learning from different perspectives. So going to an HBCU afforded that opportunity, but in the traditional high school sense, James Baldwin, I'm I'm largely you know generalizing, but assuming that he wasn't part of the talk curriculum. So yeah, I, that's I, I I didn't get to James Baldwin until later in life, but you know in my late twenties uh, and thirties. Um, so he also I mean he had lots of other texts like Giovanni's Room as well. But one thing that really um, kind of re-piqued my interest in James Baldwin was a documentary directed by Raoul Preck, and it was called I Am Not Your Negro. And it was a ambitious um, endeavor, I guess. And so he took James Baldwin's unfinished work, which was called Remember This House. And he told the story um, using the narrative of Medgar, Ever Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X. And so the documentary uses photos you know, by Gordon Parks and all these really stark images and newspaper articles, but also the words of Baldwin and sort of streamlines together the story of using your voice and you know, your voice being turned against you to make you think that you're crazy, that what you're seeing is not real, when in fact, you know, what's happening in front of your face is actually here. And when you speak up about it, people will denial is real in America. And so it's, it's a journey through his life and his perspective and his honest portrayal and his thoughts and looking at, you know, things that he was putting, you know, speaking truth to power in the late 1950s and 60s and 70s and things not really changing. And so reflecting on his words now in 2020, it, it's just, it, it's crazy how it seems like he's still, he's, he's aware of what was happening today. Um, so I, I've just been inspired by him. And so does anyone else have any thoughts on James Baldwin um, before we get started, before I share about, you know, he has so many quotes and, you know, memorable essays and literatures. And so does anybody else want to share something that James Baldwin meant to them? So, uh, go ahead, go ahead, Braden. Oh, uh, so um, it's not specifically about James Baldwin, but I think um, by him being able to uh, overcome so many things as a, a gay man, as a black man, and having his experiences in France, he was able to um, kind of relate to uh, the situations of today um, because up until, I guess, even a month ago, it was so many people that just could not talk about blackness and what mattered to them and what struggles that they were facing. So yes, Braden's my son. <laughs> I have to agree. That was, um, I just think at the time he was, um, he had to be a very, very brave soul <laughs> at that time where he was talking and speaking the truth. Um, people were listening. 
And that took a lot of courage at, the, at that time. Brendan, I had a quote from um, that um, series on Netflix. I don't know if you wanted to share one first or I'll share this one. Go for it. Okay. So it starts as, this is a journey to know the truth. And then there's some couple other personal notes in there. Then he goes on to say, I am saying that a journey is called that because you cannot know what you will discover on the journey, what you will do with what you find or what you find will do to you. Mm. So that one kind of struck me personally right now as, you know, I'm on a personal journey right now to do a lot of learning and a lot of unlearning. So that quote during that show was really stuck with me. 100%. And I think that's something that, and one of his major points was that we're all people and we all look different. We all believe different things, but we're all on this planet discovering ourselves and discovering our shared humanity. And I think right now we are, everybody is on some sort of journey, whether that's medically or professionally or personally, spiritually, morally. And yeah, and so I'm, I'm glad that we have this space together that we can kind of collaborate and, you know, walk, walk together in this journey because I, I agree. Um, anybody else want to share anything? Thank you for sharing. Anybody else want to share a quote? And so one thing that I, I've shared, I, I can go next, is uh, something that's on the screen now, and it was children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. And that was something that I saw on a Facebook post, and I kind of had as my little cover banner for, for a long time on Facebook. And something that just that struck me personally just as, you know, having an uh, unbelievable role model, you know, as a dad that was strong and strict and loving and fair and honest, you know, I always had that role model and he dedicated his life to, you know, supporting me and making sure that me and my brother had everything we need. And I still fought him every way that I could and rarely listened to the advice that he gave me. And even though he knew and, you know, being older now, I know as an educator and an uncle and trying to mentor kids that they're not always going to listen to you, but it's very important that they are watching. They do hear you. They do remember things that you say. They remember the way that you make them feel. And so the image is much more important at this point in their young lives than every little thing that you say. And so it's really important to be that constant reminder, that steady symbol that is professional, that is loving, that is caring, that always believes in students no matter what. And so this quote has been, you know, very important to me to always, you know, represent myself well as an educator, you know, represent my school, you know, be, be a team player, be positive, because, you know, as an educator, kids see that, whether they don't have teachers, whether they have you or they don't have you, they remember the feeling that you gave them and they see how you treat other people. And so this was just always something that I, you know, regardless of test scores and attendance and all that other stuff, you know, I wanted to make sure that the, the symbol that I portrayed and put forward is always positive for my students. And so that this is something that this quote always stuck with me and kind of guided a lot of my, a lot of my teaching. Anybody else wanna share? Going off of that, um, regarding that same quote, being an only child, like I didn't have someone to watch their reactions as a sibling or anything. And then becoming a teacher, I realized, like obviously as a first, second year, we all get so caught up in the evaluations and everything and all the, behind the scenes stuff at times, but I realize, mind you, I teach kindergarten. I can speak for elementary, but not the older grades. Like the biggest thing that stuck out was 
watching your students play school during recess. That is the biggest evaluation you can ever have because they're gonna impersonate, they're gonna like um, repeat things you say to get their attention to the way they scold other students, whoever's playing the teacher, whoever's, and that was a huge eye-opener for me in the beginning of my career, and it's so, so important. Something I've said at conferences, too, I'm like, you can get angry, you can get mad, you can get sad, we're human, but how are you showing them how you cope with it, or how you talk to them about it? And that's what's really stood out to me, even if something happens to me at school. So I liked that one also. Oh, and Brandon asked me to share this quote, which I think is very timely in light of everything. And I think it's kind of apropos after the funeral and the deaths of John Lewis and Reverend C.T. Vivian is it is certain in any case that ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're seeing that can relate. That's why it's you, you, the power of his words. And I think, you know, coupled with John Lewis and now James Baldwin, where you know, again, the, their thoughts are not new. They've been saying these loud and clear for years, but now, they're impacting multiple generations of people because it's, it's rooted in truth. And so hopefully the power of their words continue to teach us um, because we see that ignorance and power mixed together is having real damage and real effects on the, the world, honestly, you know, COVID related. Um, anybody else wanna share something? Thoughts, feelings on James Baldwin? And so what I wanted to do next is I'm going to play a clip for us and see what you guys think about that. Um, and so what, one also thing that kind of came up while I was researching and you know looking about some information about I'm Not Your Negro is a documentary. Um, what, it was nominated for an Oscar, but the documentary that won an Oscar was Made in America, O.J. Simpson, O.J. Simpson story. And that was something that made me reflect because I had seen both of these films or you know, documentaries at around the same time. And I was much more decidedly interested in the O.J. Simpson one and sort of just all the hoopla and just all, so the, the case. And I remember being young and I remember the case, but just you know, thinking about that and devoting so much time and energy and just thinking like, wow, this is so fascinating. When, I mean, when that is like, that, that's not what I should be focused on or that should not be something that's, celebrated or something that's capturing the imagination of America. And I think that's very telling and interesting that's, you know, things like that, you know, do grab the attention of most of America. And so it was something I, I'm complicit in that as well. And so that was something that I was, as I was looking through, I was like, hmm, Oscar nominated? Yeah, why didn't win any Oscars? Oh, the OJ documentary won. <laughs> won. Okay, that, that sort of makes sense. And I had a little moment to myself. So um, anyway. Just and does and the OJ think about the fact that the OJ Simpson, well, anything related to OJ Simpson, just confirms and reinforces the narrative in this country about um, black men and being violent human beings and whatnot. So I, I could see why they would like that too. All right, so I'm going to share this clip of James Baldwin speaking. This is 
I will give you the context after I'll tell you where he was, but let's let's just listen in. Well, we are confronted with the racial confrontation in America today. I think the pictures of dogs in the hands of human beings attacking other human beings. In a free country. In a free country. In the middle of the 20th century. This Birmingham, clearly not restricted to Birmingham, as you so eloquently pointed out. What do you think can be done to change, to use your term, the moral fiber of America? I think the one has got to find some way of putting the present administration of this country on the spot. One has got to force somehow from Washington a moral commitment, not to the Negro people, but to the life of this country. It doesn't matter any longer and I'm speaking for myself, for Jimmy Baldwin, and I think I'm speaking for a great many other Negroes too. It doesn't matter any longer what you do to me. You can put me in jail, you can kill me, but by the time I was 17, you had done everything that you could do to me. The problem now is, how are you gonna save yourselves? And so that's something that as I was looking at that recording, it was a question that stuck out to me, where what can we do to change the moral fiber of America, where we can look at all these small pockets, whether it's the economy, we can look at schools, we can look at public health, we see these racial divisions, but COVID-19 doesn't care about any of those things. It doesn't care about zip codes, doesn't care about neighborhoods, doesn't care about skin color. So we have something that we're all dealing with that is you know, attacking these border, these boundaries, these borders, these lines that we've set up, these distinctions, COVID doesn't care about that. And so what we're forced with to is really look at ourselves as humans and humanity. And we look at the racial disparity, the social justice, the death tolls in terms of COVID-related deaths. And so what can we do or what can you do or the collective we to change the moral fiber of America? Because that's one of the tough questions that he was asking where we can talk about humanity, we can talk about race relations, but if we're not talking about the moral fiber of our country, what can we do to change it? And so that's a question that I wanted to just talk about tonight is, what can we do to change the moral fiber of America? And I know that's a, a major question and it's something that I don't have the answer to, but it's something that I, I thought was, yeah, I, I seriously, no pressure at all, but it's just something that I, as I was thinking, I'll go, I'll go first. And so. I, I think it comes with education. I think, again, it comes with speaking people's truth and hearing other people's truth. And that's something that we've explored, you know, through this pandemic with all these Zoom talks and these seminars and webinars and trivia nights and book clubs is really getting to know one another, or, but also around sort of important literature, important ideas that are not necessarily promoted and accepted by our, you know, everyone commonly that, that, that we share. And I, I think that's leading to lots of divisions and we see that in our schools as well. And so what, what can we do? I think it's schools have the power to be that collective force. That's something that we're all invested in. We want what's best for our kids. 
And so I think the best ways for teachers, what we can do is, again, sort of embed some of those important lessons, like we're talking about SEL, but also some of those old civics lessons about being a citizen, about, you know, being, you know, a, a neighbor and, you know, part, part of a community, I think is something that is lost in schools. And I think that's something that we can try to create more opportunities and dedicated lessons, not just in SEL, but also civics and being community minded, you know, as our students, because I think that's something that we, we don't have as much of. I'll chime in. So um, for, for lack of a, a better way to say this, we have to help the idiots connect the dots. So um, for example, we were just talking about this uh, the other day. So at um, our kids' public elementary school, they say it's overcrowded, but there's a builder building new homes like right next to the school. Now, I don't know how many they're building, but to me, it was seen that the same county that's funding the school that had to allow these land and use permits to this builder, um, somebody would say, hey, um, unless this is a 55 plus community where there will be no elementary school students, we got to figure something out, you know? So whatever, you know, person did not connect those dots or doesn't care to connect those dots, you know, we had to kind of uh, start attacking those or, or, you know, helping people figure that out if they just don't have the uh, God-given intelligence to, to put that together. Following right off of that, when, if those, which I mean, those houses will eventually get built, let's be honest, if they get built and they've got elementary school students in there, then the, um, then, if anyone has to be, any school has to be redistricted, they can just move the lines based on socioeconomic demographic because it's what people want in a certain district. The lines have to move, things have to be equitable, and that changes percent certain percentages, that changes certain percentages. I, kids are still getting a great education by some amazing staff, no matter what school they're in. And it's never gonna change if people don't, make the change happen in the first place. One of, the, um, one of the things I did, and I've seen that clip before, but um, I closed my eyes that this, this time just to see what, what I can visualize from those words and try to put it in a context of what is happening today. And all I kept thinking about that kept coming back to me is, is in the 60s, I'm sure someone said, okay, what do we do now? And then the 70s, people are still saying, what do we do now? What do we, what do we, how do we take what we've learned and, and make some real change? And now we're still asking that question. I'm sure we'll ask that question over and over. What do we do now until some real, real change come along? So um, it's, um, I was kind of depressed again after looking at the, after hearing the words because it, it fits right into um, happening today but I do think is up to us as educators um, on to um, to really change the narrative and um, start with our youngest kids I used to be very naive and think that um, I would talk to my parents and think that racism would disappear when all those old old guys die 
I was very naive to think that, but I, I was optimistic and hopeful. I said, it's going to be over soon because they're going to all be dead. But I didn't realize, I didn't think at that time, and this was in the elementary middle, that um, there are generations teaching other gener the next generation and teaching the next generation um, to devalue others. Um, so. And, and they're passing homes and land down to that next generation also. Oh, and I, also, I, I'm sorry, go I, ahead. I think that John Lewis in his editorial left a very good uh, guidepost for us to follow in terms of what we need to do as Americans. When we see a wrong, speak up. He talked about young people becoming involved. And I think as educators, one of the things that perhaps you could do is because children have a big effect on their parents, and if they don't have an effect on their parents, they start to learn at a very early age. I think it's important to talk to young people about the importance of voting. One of the things that, and I may be off on the number, but it's roughly about 50% of the people, eligible people in America vote, and only 50% of the people vote. So I think if we were to stress more and more that people vote, if you start by voting in your local elections, presidential elections, the importance of uh, state, state uh, elections in terms of because they're responsible for drawing boundaries and how districts are, are uh, who's represented. So there's no more as much gerrymandering as exists today. But again, if I think, if it's true, and I don't know if when James Bowman was speaking, if the voter participation rate was greater than it is today, or is it about the same? But I think people have to decide that they have to put skin in the game. And voting is, I think, where we can start. And That's I think, and I, and I think our administration, current administration knows that and knows that these platforms of communication and really, you know, the ability to tell the truth is something that's going to severely hurt uh, this current administration. And that's why they're trying to suppress the vote and do everything they can to defund the Postal Service and make it as hard as possible to vote. And I think it's one of those plays that we're seeing, again, what, like James Ball was saying, we see it right in front of our faces. And it's, it, it's clear systematic racism and it needs to change. How do we impact that change? How do we change that fiber in our country? And I wanted to point out, going back to the, the time that Baldwin made that statement, there was a high level of voter suppression, particularly in the South, because during that time in the early 60s, my mom was out of college and graduate school, and my mom was actually helping register folks to vote. So there was a whole high level of voter suppression back then where we're still seeing it now, particularly in certain states. And while back then you had to take a particular test to vote, um, now it's, you know, now you see the, um, particularly the administration against mail-in ballots and um, other tactics to really suppress um, black, black folks' right to vote. Um, a, a, a right that, you know, that's part of the reason why John Lewis marched to the Edmund Pettus Bridge and almost lost his life. So that's one of the things is that, you know, what I say, I call it the modern day civil rights movement is you're still fighting the same fight 50 some odd years later. And I always remind people, you know, 1963, the March on Washington wasn't that long ago. It really wasn't that long ago when you really think about it. You know, 1968 and the protests, it wasn't that long ago. 1968 was 52 years ago. So, you know, it's kind of like the his, history is going to be repeated if you don't get the lesson. It's going to be repeated.
And I, I think for me, when he was speaking, like the part for me that stuck out the most was the, the, when he was talking about morality, like how immoral it to me, this is me speaking. Like, I think it's just so immoral to say to a group of people, well, you have more melanin in your skin, so you are less than. And it's just an accepted, it's an accepted fact um, in this country. Like it's, it's part of the fiber of it. And so when that fiber needs to be removed so that we can unravel the cloth of, of what really stains this country, like until, until we deal with the stain of the way that this country was begun, we, we will not be able to move forward. And so in the classroom as a teacher, like I have to ask myself, so am I morally, am I looking at the children in front of me and am I thinking of the children as human beings? Am I thinking of them as less than? Am I thinking all of these things that have been passed down and trained into myself? Um, you know, we're morally very immature in this country. It's like, ooh, if you get caught, then you're sorry. But if you're doing it, if you're doing something, for example, discriminating against people and you don't get caught, well, then you don't feel bad about it. And that's just moral immaturity. So we have to, we have to change. We have to morally grow. Uh, yes, this is uh, Mark Schoening speaking. I, I feel that in order for things to really change, uh, educators have to step up. Educators in many ways are so overly focused on data, student achievement, and at the same time, they frown upon kids who are change agents because the change agents are the ones that will confront authority, confront rules. But we have a tendency as, as a as a educational community to stifle their voices. When those are the ones who are really in a position changing this society. And in many ways, the students are looking at the adults to lead. They're looking at the educators to really step up. And in many ways, as adults and as educators, we have failed our kids. We put too much time on whether a kid is passing or failing rather than creating a, a, a child who can transform their lives as well as others through having a sense of empowerment. And that's just my two cents. Thank you, and I agree, and I think that's, what we we're kind of talking about and to tie all the strands together is that, you know, as educators, we have the power to collaborate and like Bettina Love says, to also um, co-conspire together and sort of plot and figure out how, what are we going to present to our students and, you know, the right to vote and taking the importance of voting. But when we talk about voting, and this is what Monica was putting in the chat, and I agree, is we think about the presidential vote but we don't realize and we don't really have access to the information that we need for all of those positions that are down the ballot, even things like our state's attorney. 
um, things like that, where you know, often these people run unopposed, or you know, we're, we're not informed enough to make the valid decisions of what is this attorney's or this judge's stance on this particular case, and they get voted in, and we we don't really have full information. And so, uh, you know, as educators, I, I definitely agree that you know, it is our job to you know, instill in the future that these rights that, you know, people like John Lewis and James Baldwin wrote about and fought for and bled for and died for are critical rights that pe that you, you need to take seriously, you need to advocate for. I wanted to mention something about just like the access to that information. I've struggled in like gaining information about elections because often it's hosted by newspapers that have pay barriers. And so like, they don't have a website or they don't have information out and so you have to have an access to that newspaper to get the only interview that is available. And I think that limiting access to information is part of those systems of control as well. And, you know, limiting the truth, policing people's tones and their thoughts are, are a system of control. And the point also is that, yeah, the students that are standing up that are the, the good troublemakers and the change agents, they're the ones that often do rebel in class, that don't want to stand in line, that don't want to be quiet in the hallway, because really it's an arbitrary rule. You don't actually have to be quiet in the hallway. Maybe should you not be screaming and people are testing, sure, but is a hard and fast rule that you absolutely cannot speak in the hallway? Not at all. And so I think that the arbitrary rules we set up for kids are could be damaging, and we need to ensure that we're showing them that you know you, you have to be creative and flexible and work collaboratively with people and you know share the, the 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 positive parts of humanity i should say and not really the negative parts because again embracing youth culture i think a lot of kids aren't they, they don't see the racial divisions that we see and i think they, they they notice it they they are aware that it's real but i think kids don't aren't hung up on it and i think they're just again mimicking the language that they see and it's on us to mimic that language as well, or mimic the opposite language of love and abolitionist teaching. And if you see these things, like John Lewis said, you need to stand up and say something. Well, I have a bit of a different perspective because I'm at a high school. So I think it, the, when kids are older, they definitely do see those differences and they're not mimicking. And I think sometimes we underestimate and, and undervalue the leadership skills and potential of our students. And as I put in the chat, if you look at our student member of the board and our previous student member of the board and the previous student member of the board and the other previous student member of the board, we have had excellent leadership in that position. And I don't know if anyone caught Baltimore County's race and racism conversation, but the students had their own separate chat on Instagram and it was amazing. And so they are leading even sometimes when it feels like the adults are kind of falling back and not leading. They have really, they are really stepping up and having these discussions and talking about action and what should we do and what can we do. And I would say, to your point about mimicking that might that maybe that happens at the elementary level but definitely at the high school level students are a lot more conscious they're they're a lot more um i would say conscientious and they see things and they observe things and they're not just mimicking they're really thinking about things and the conversations i've had with students over the years they they know things and they're they're they have a a level of awareness I think that sometimes we don't always appreciate and we may underestimate. 
Absolutely, yes, and thank you for clarifying. Yeah, as an elementary educator, I definitely meant more elementary students, sort of just mimicking the language they see and hear on TV and bring into the classroom and not really having you know, the, the thought and the foundation of having the belief, just mimicking it, but definitely our high school students are unbelievable and really putting pressure on educators, principals, board members, that you know enough is enough and that their their voices they're speaking up and their voice is not being heard and they're not seeing the results and so things throughout the county need to change and I mean, we as educators we need to support them 100% because they're really turning it back on us and making us reflect on the practices that we so deeply believe in and they're telling us that it's not effective and it's often oppressive and we need to make major changes and so yeah thank thank you for bringing up that clarification anybody else want to jump in on James Baldwin before we get into the podcast All right, awesome. So yeah, thank you guys for sharing your thoughts. And so our featured segment today was an Amer it is an American Radio Works podcast. Um, it's APM Reports. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, please do. It's a podcast from 2001. It's called Remembering Jim Crow. And it was something that I've listened to probably about 10 years ago. And it's something that always kind of stuck with me. And what stuck with me and really was the genesis of this podcast was the students at Duke University took tape recorders out across the South and they recorded, um, you know, Southerners that lived in Jim Crow South um, in, the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they interviewed them on tape. And so you really got to hear their perspectives and hear their stories. And the, the, the main thing that I wanted this podcast to emulate was hearing people's truth and being a, having a space for you to just share your thoughts and feelings and letting other people hear that because you know, speaking your truth, making yourself open to love, but also criticism as well is something that's really important and something that we need to practice, something that we need to model as well. And so this was just something, a podcast that always stuck with me because you can hear sort of the truth and the pain in, in a lot of the stories and some of the ignorance as well, um, both black and white and sort of the, the times of Jim Crow and the effects that it had on people and culture and do we still have some of those symptoms today? And so does anybody have any thoughts? Is Jim Crow something, as I take it back to uh, make it local and immediate and to educators, is Jim Crow something that you learned about in school? Or is that something that you felt was, you, you feel informed about enough to teach uh, your students before we jump into the podcast? Was Jim Crow a part of your academic career, high school or even post high school? Oh, I'll I'll jump in. I grew up in Cecil County, um, and not once did I know anything about Jim Crow laws. Um, all I knew that was that Martin Luther King came down and ended racism and ended segregation. That's all I really learned. Um, and it wasn't until um, in Baltimore County, we have an eighth grade American music class where I've sort of turned it more into an American music history class, which is African-American music history. Um, and there was my education to Jim Crow laws um, and what the musicians and the African-Americans had to deal with during that time. Um, but went to college in Towson, went to school in Maryland my whole life and never really learned about that until I was sort of forced into it, doing the work for my students, so. Yeah, I agree. For, for me, it was a footnote, maybe a sentence or two in history class and then it was done. That was it. Um, what's great about the videos, I, the interviews were fantastic. I, I love the hear. I love how um, the honesty from both sides, from um, different perspectives of what Jim Crow was, and how honest 
uh, it, was, it was kind of refreshing and scary at the same time to hear the honesty <laughs> in some of the voices that the plant, the guys who own the plantation. Well, I, I, oh. go ahead, Erica. Well, I well I had a different experience because I I learned about Jim Crow early because my parents both of them experienced Jim Crow. My mother grew up in South Carolina in a time of segregation, and so you know my mother grew up in a time where you couldn't go to Myrtle Beach if you were black. You had to go to Atlantic Beach and told stories about how my grandfather who was a jack of all trades, fixed up this old bus and took everybody in the community um, to Atlantic Beach. So people would have that experience. And so, and then also being from Atlanta, being from the South, you know, you still saw remnants of that. So, you know, I kinda, I kinda had, I, I had the, I had, I didn't have the actual lived experience, but I had the experiences of the folks around me who experienced that. You know, my mother remembered, you know, the colored water fountains and the white water fountains in the back of the bus. And even though my dad grew up in Ohio and his family moved from Tennessee because of the great migration, he was like, going back to Tennessee, you, you experienced it and even being in the military. So I had that experience. And I think also, I think people don't necessarily talk to people in their families who have experiences enough. Like in my family, that was very much part of our, our family culture and tradition, you know, and you just kind of, back then it was kind of like, you just knew your place, like even towns. And I see remnants, you know, here in Baltimore, there's the quote unquote black side of town and the white side of town, kind of like you don't cross, crossing over the tracks and knowing where that phrase came from. So, you know, I had an education about Jim Crow relatively early. What I would like to share is in 1962, I was 10 years old and my parents took my sister and me to visit my grandparents and cousins, et cetera, in North Carolina. Both of them grew up in the South, my father in Florida, my mother in North Carolina. Now, what my father told me was, if you need something to drink or you have to go to the bathroom, once we get to Washington, D.C., you can't do that. You know, I'm a kid. Sure enough, we get to Washington, D.C., and I say to my father, I have to go to the bathroom, I want something to drink. And he takes me to, um, I guess it's like a ticket window, and he asks the gentleman, could my daughter have something to drink? And she has to go to the bathroom. And my, he looked at my father and said, now, sir, you know better than that. You know I can't give her anything to drink, and you know she can't go to the bathroom here. You can go around the corner and find the, you know, colored bathroom. At that time, it didn't mean a lot to me, except I had to go to the bathroom. I was thirsty. But as I got older, what I realized was how my father felt that his child couldn't have something to drink, that she couldn't go to the bathroom, although he told me, but I didn't understand why he had said, like Washington, D.C. was the boogeyman. I didn't get it. And looking back on that experience, I felt badly that he must have felt less than a father, less than a man, that I couldn't have what other children could have, you know, white children. We didn't have to sit in the back of the bus. That I, I remember that. But I also remember on that trip when we got to North Carolina, my sister and I went to the movies with my cousins. And we had to sit upstairs. Again, it didn't matter to me. It was kind of dirty and, you know, papers all over. But when we went to buy candy, 
We went down a staircase. My sister and I went right through the door. And the lady looked at us and said, y'all ain't from here, is you? And we said, no, we're from New York. And she said, well, y'all got to step back behind that door if you want something. And I remember that forever. So you know what? It was many years ago, but I will always remember that. Um, and to the point of the last speaker, yes, there are remnants of that in towns all across the United States where they're the railroad tracks, the black side and the white side, and those are remnants of Jim Crow, exactly. Yeah, I, I remember um, hearing those stories from my parents. Uh, my mother was very quiet about it, and um, but my father was very vocal and, and angry all the time. He served in World War II. So um, he couldn't get loans to buy a house, um, was steered to certain neighborhoods, couldn't go in certain department stores. And he shared that with us. There were certain stores I that we wanted to go in in the shop. Um, and he would always say, don't go in that store. And he would tell us the stories about how he wasn't able to go in there in the past, or don't go to that bank. Never never put your money in that bank in, in different places. I remember, um, uh, when it was time to get clothes for school, and um, we re we could not go shopping, um, and I was I, you know I was born in '64, um, so they would have the salespeople. They would send the black salesmen to the house, and we would order our clothes, clothing, and things like that, or things we needed for the home through the salesman, so that we didn't have to go into the store. And I never made the connection at the time. I just thought it was cool. Some guys coming in the house and we're gonna get something to wear and we're gonna get shoes. It was one of those things where instead of going in a store, he would, my, my dad and mom would trace our feet and, um, and someone else would go pick up the shoes for us and hope they fit, that kind of thing. Um, so it's just, I, like I said, I never paid attention to it. I just thought it was the way it was, um, but yeah. It was interesting. And, that, and that's something that they identify as living behind the veil, where, you know, Blacks in America were forced to sort of create this hidden culture, this hidden way of life, because of Jim Crow has created this system where any sort of, anything that you wanted to do, any way of life, you're, you're treated as lazy, but as soon as you work, you get murdered for it. And so the, you had to really protect yourself and absolutely protect the children. And that's what they were talking about, Vernon, just like you said, mom, thank you for sharing that, you know, they, they kept children at home, that children weren't really to go anywhere out in public because it was just too dangerous. And so the little girl said, in the, or she was an adult now, but when she was a little girl, they would try on the shoes, they would bring the shoes to her home. If they didn't fit, they would go back out the next day and buy another pair of shoes. They would never ever bring her to the store. And in terms of policing, they would also say, you know, the, the sheriff would sit in the, the, the middle of the town and as black people would drive out to the beach, if you drove past them, you were absolutely getting pulled over and you needed to pay a fine. And that, that, that's sort of the most insidious part for me as we listen to the stories and we listen to the perspectives and the history. And it was always that black people were less intelligent, they were inferior, they were dirty, they were animals, but at the same time, they weren't allowed in town Monday through Friday, but after they got paid on Saturday and had a little bit of money, they could come to town and spend their money. Their money wasn't dirty. Their money wasn't ignorant. Their money wasn't less intelligent. And so again, the, the way of to profit off of black people was something that really kind of shined through and sort of that perspective of keeping them lower class and always dependent on 
the white supremacy structure was very important, especially in the Deep South, and was something that was brought up over and over again. Yeah, one one line that struck with me in one of the interviews with the guy, um, I think he was back from the war, and and he um, went to college, and he his quote was, uh, if I can say it, I hope I'm saying it correctly, I, I refuse to be a highly educated elevator operator. <laughs> so that's when he left the South and went up North. He, I mean, he, he was um, reminiscing about a lot of his, a lot of folks who were very highly educated, but they couldn't get a job except for those service jobs during that time in the South. Brendan, this is your dad. J just so that people understand, this was not, Jim Crow was not something that was unique to the South. I, I'm not sure, Brennan, if you realize that growing up on Long Island, a master builder in New York State was a gentleman by the name of Robert Moses. Oh, you, you, I, I, yeah, you go ahead and tell us, I was going to tell a story about the overpasses and for the buses and stuff. I was going to. Well, you got it. Go ahead and tell no, it. Go for it. No, go, Dad, go, go for it. No, I, I mean, one of the things we talk about in people, I've never lived in the South. I've only lived, I grew up on Long Island. I was raised on Long Island. It's the only place I've lived. But when I hear these stories about things that happened in the South, I didn't realize when I was a lot younger and didn't start to learn about these things until I was much older about the things that existed. And Robert Moses, he is glorified uh, in New York State as being a master builder. And as the migration took place from people leaving uh, the Deep South coming to New York City, and they located there, uh, Levittown is the great uh, community that was built after World War II. The GIs fought, they couldn't get along. But one of the things that was people moved to the city, but Long Island, because it's an island, we have great beaches. And what Robert Moses decided to do was he built, well, now there's a Long Island Expressway 495, uh, which is part of the great highway system that was built. But before that, it was the Northern State Parkway and a parkway called Southern State Parkway. And so that there were, you know, because minorities were located in the inner city, they didn't have cars, but they had access to buses. And what he decided to do so that there would not be an influx of minorities coming to the beaches on Long Island during the weekends, he constructed the, Long Island, the Northern State and Southern State Parkway system. But every overpass is limited such the height is such that a bus can't use those roadways. And he did that specifically so inner city folks wouldn't come to the beaches on the weekends. And that's why that was done. And I think though those planned neighborhoods like Levittown, like sort of these construction projects, like you're saying, that they were all throughout the country to limit traffic and to limit the movement of black people and to be able to police them. And so we see it, you know, we're learning about redlining and blockbusting in Baltimore and all over the country. I mean, we see these practices and it's still reminiscent today. And that's why we were so fortunate to have Lewis Diggs on the podcast you know, a couple of weeks ago, because he was just talking about this history and why our communities look the way that they do. And your example, you know, you're telling us why Long Island looks the way it does. And it's something that I didn't notice as a kid, but, you know, I was looking through data and Suffolk County, Nassau County is routinely like top 10 most segregated counties in the country and when you look back it's like yeah that makes total sense growing up there and so when we see it all over the country and we see the the remnants of these things and we think it's dead and gone and that's what we're teaching our kids and, and it's not and we're still 
seeing these symptoms today. Um, anybody else yeah. want to jump in? That's true. Uh, Amanda put in something about the buses going to Owens Mills. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> I was just thinking about that because um, there's they call them the maids bus stops. I don't know if they still call them that, but back when I was in college, it was called the maids bus stop because there were on the buses didn't run. Mass Transit didn't run to certain areas in Owings Mills, but the maids had to get to work. Mm -hmm. So they ran special lines in the morning and in the evening just to get them back and forth to work. It, it was just a, it's a way to keep that neighborhood looking a certain way, um, but we have to get our houses cleaned and our kids uh, mm -hmm. watched. Mm -hmm. Well, I, and I have another, I have a story. I, I put it in the chat. I found out uh, a number of years ago, my dad never talked about this, but my dad actually started to sit in his senior year in college. And my dad went to Central State University, which is in Wilberforce, Ohio. So Wilberforce University is literally right across the street. And Wilberforce is right next to this little town called Xenia. And the president of Central State was um, Dr. Um, Charles Wesley, who was a past general president of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated and their past historian. Well, Dr. Wesley was their first president, PhD from, got, has degrees from Yale, Harvard. He goes into, I think his doctor is from Harvard. But anyway, he goes into Xenia, which is a neighboring town to get something to eat and he's turned away at the lunch counter. So, and this is in 1958 in Xenia, Ohio. And my dad was a member of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. And actually my dad was treasurer of his chapter, the chapter of Central State. And so my dad and his frat brothers decided they were gonna have a sit-in and protest. And my dad being the treasurer collected money from everybody because he said, you know, we all gonna go to jail. So let's collect bail money. And so my dad's frat brothers were telling me this story. They're like, oh yeah, you know, you didn't know your dad like started to sit in. Now my dad was the first in his family to go to college and to graduate from college. And I don't think he told my grandmother because my grandmother probably would have found her way to Wil to Wilberforce and probably killed him. But, <laughs> you know, they were like, yeah, you know, they were like, yeah, your dad, he just did it like, you know, yeah, come on guys, come on, come on brothers, let's do this. And I was just like, he's, and I said, as many times as I, as I have been to Central State with my dad, He's never said a word. He never said a word. My dad's deceased now. But I'm like, he never said a word. He said, oh, I, they were like, oh, yeah. And so I think sometimes, I guess, you know, people were talking about my history. I said, yeah, but I said, you know, the interesting thing is that I came from people who did bold things, but they just didn't talk about it. It was kind of like, well, that's just what we did. It's kind of in the narrative of you see something wrong and you take that bold risk and you try to change it, even though you were in a society that said, you don't want to cause trouble. You don't want to cause too much trouble. And, and also, Erica, may your dad rest in peace. People don't always want to talk about war when they come back, you know? So all the struggles and everything, as much as it did for everybody, you know, soldiers don't necessarily want to talk about that when they get home. And that was one of the most important factors that led to civil rights, though, was so many black soldiers fighting overseas in World War I and World War II and then coming back and being oppressed at home. And that was something that they talk about in the podcast where, you know, soldiers are coming back and he was a Navy boxing champion. I'm forgetting his name. I had it written down. Um, anyway, he was a Navy boxing champion. He went to the store with his mom in New York City 
or maybe it was in New York City actually, um, but it was, it was somewhere he went. He went with his shopping with his mom in the town, and the shopkeeper, you know, tried to hit him in the back of the head, and he punched the shopkeeper, and the guy fell through the window, and the the narrative coming out of that was black man beats a white man, and that's something that's not allowed at all. And so they, the shopkeeper's brother was on law enforcement officer, and you know that led to a white mob coming after him. But then also just like kind of Erica was saying, was there was a black community where they said, no, okay, well, we'll protect this and we're just gonna have to have a shootout. There'll be a white mob versus a black mob. And that was the resistance that really took place to start to begin the civil rights fight was that there were so many soldiers that were fighting in the armed forces and there have been black soldiers for since the beginning of the country, but specifically, you know, the world wars going overseas really gave black people sort of the perspective that, you know, th they should not be treated like this in, in our own country, especially if they're fighting for um, our country. But before we go into that, and let's just jump back because we had a lot of great stories, a lot of anecdotes, but just to go for as Jim Crow was an elaborate system of systemic racism that was generated in the South, but slowly kind of permeated throughout, the, throughout America. And it, it really kind of designed, there was one audio where, you know, a man said, you know, you knew what your place was and you better stand. And that's where some of that I think about today in 2020, places. You know, you better know your place, know your role. Does that concept still exist today? Do we still have roles? Do we still have places where we can and can't go? Things that we can and can't say? Or do we largely have the freedom that we say we do? Um, and that was the first question that came up to me. Do places, in quotations, do places, stay in your place, still exist today? Absolutely, it does. When I was working and, you know, my white coworkers would say, oh, on the way back from blah, 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 we stopped at this cute little bar. And I would say, I can't stop at every cute little bar on Long Island or especially on Long Island. You can't, so we know our places and you're angry about it, but you don't want the aggravation of going to certain places and then it's a problem. So unfortunately, yeah, we we learn have learned how to avoid certain environments because we can already project there's going to be a problem. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about the recent comments from that um, <clears throat> uh, Mike Dicka, and of course constantly from our um, president to remind certain folks to stay in their place. They just say it in different ways. And the whole Colin Kaepernick thing, or, or uh, some of the um, news pundits who say things like, just shut up and play basketball, um, as if your voice doesn't matter. Um, happens all the time. I remember being told, I was working on um, a, a freelance job, and, and, I, and it had to do with um, a, a monument to an African-American who was prominent. And I had opinions and I was told in that meeting to just go shut up and make art because, and, and those little things like that, it, 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 um, it's a way to silence the dialogue and to, um, and to remind us of your place. Your place is not to make decisions or to make waves or, um, or anything like that. So yeah, I think it still exists today. Um, and I think you bring up an interesting point about sports as well and looking at the NBA who has a, a, a huge platform and really tapped into youth culture and 
a large majority of my students love basketball and they love Steph Curry and, and they're watching these games. So they do have this platform. And so they've decided to not put their names on the jerseys, but, you know, have education reform, Black Lives Matter, say her name. And I, I've, but LeBron James decided not to put, you know, one of those slogans. It just has LeBron James on the back of his jersey. And so just thinking about that, is that a way, is that actual, is that meaningful? Or is it more of the action of people like Erica's dad, John Lewis, people that are not really having social media, obviously, but even a platform to talk about what they're doing. They're just about the action. They're just doing it. And is this more performance or is this actual work that is going to make meaningful change? And so that, you know, that, that's not really a question, but that, that's what I've been thinking about is how, as we look at leaders and people that are using their platforms and voices, is that resulting in action right now? I, I'm not sure. Um, and that's when I jumped in. So on the very naive other side of this, yeah. um, I didn't realize, so in high school, I got the, like, we touched on it, and that was about it. I knew it existed. Um, and I remember my mom and my aunt telling me about how, I don't remember if it was when my aunt was in uh, elementary or middle school, but my mom was already into the next you know, into the next building because she's older. And they were talking about how that was when they integrated schools. And my aunt goes to the mixed school now. And that's how my, my grandmother felt at the time. Mind you, she's also a middle-class British woman who grew up in England where kids are seen, not heard, the end, end of story. That's how life goes. And I'm like, I was pretty aware of like who was telling me and whose side of things I was hearing. I understood that. Um, since my elementary school and middle school are pretty diverse. So like I understood that much. But hearing all of these interviews from both sides and all the discussions I've been a part of and um, book studies I've been doing, this is so eye-opening, making all these connections on, on both sides, honestly. But I wanna know what are, being a kindergarten teacher, for personal experience, I want to know how many st stories my younger students have heard. And I'm not going to, I can only go into so much detail with five-year-olds. Like, I don't need to. But there's still going to be, that's still going to be brought up. Things are going to be brought up in classroom at some point, And I'm fine with that. But I'm really intrigued to know, like, wh which students have heard what stories and everything from grandparents and such. Yeah, and I'm sure kids internalize it at a very young age, and I'm sure, I, I think it'd be one of those opportunities to add lunch bunches, maybe just ask kids, not ask them, you know, have you ever seen racial oppression, but as you get to know them, I'm sure kids see things, and I'm sure you know, if you get a kid talking, that they will sort of tell you everything once you, you know, we know everything that's going on at home uh, as, as teachers. So, I mean, it's just an opportunity to have that conversation, but also have the lens of, this student may share something that I may not be aware of, that I have no experience in, and I'm just here to learn and listen because that's, you know, something that I know I teach third grade a little bit older, but still, even their thoughts and their perspective on things, they don't live in a bubble. They do hear things, they do have thoughts on them. It's just our job to let them express it and kind of guide them to positive decisions. Um, yeah, there's no, I don't have I'm a great answer about that. Like what's Mm -hmm. yeah. Brendan, I wanted to go back to what you were talking about with LeBron James and sure. other other athletes and famous people and whatnot. 
Um, and I, I think it's great that people in that echelon of society, um, you know, they do have a platform and they do, um, you know, have a, a wide audience, but think about Black Lives Matter. You know, I mean, these are regular everyday people. And I think we need to look at ourselves and, or I need to look at myself, I should say, and say, what can I do as a little person to affect change? And so, I don't know, I guess the point is, is that whether LeBron James wears it or not, I mean, that's his choice. He's exercising his rights, which I think is a good thing, whether, you know, I agree with him or not. But I just, I think that often in society right now, we look to other people to do the work that we need to be doing ourselves. Like my own internal work, that's where I have to start. I, I agree. My biggest jumping off, kind of jumping off that, like doing doing the work and putting it in. And what I was saying earlier, like my my biggest fear, and I say I don't say fear in the word of I'm scared to speak out. I'm scared of how much to speak out because my students are five years old. But um, my biggest fear is kids, young kids who don't know how to process all the like just certain clips of the riots and things that are on. TV or what they see online or whatever, and they don't have any explanation for why these things are happening, and they're just seeing people be violent. They're just, I mean, any young child or any kid who doesn't know what's going on per se, but I'm okay if kids bring it up and ask questions. I'm fine with that, but if they have no context and aren't being told about that, that is my biggest fear, and that goes into, Karen, you're right. We do need to completely step it up. But I also think it's how you frame the violence as well. When you see people protesting, kids see violence all the time. Kids love karate. They love ninjas. They see cowboys and Indians. And, and you know, James Baldwin would always sort of frame a lot of his points based on John Wayne and saying, you know, as a kid, I was the one rooting for John Wayne until I realized that John Wayne was shooting and killing the Indians that looked like me. And so the sort of that heroism and sort of that perspective of what are we framing that violence as? Violence is not just violence. Yeah, that violence that you see there is entertainment. This violence you see on the news where they're protesting, this is for what, what's right. These are, this is for positive change. And do we want anyone to get hurt? No. But this is what happens when people, you know, we can talk about silent marches, silent protests. Black people have done those things throughout history and still not been hurt. And so this is maybe violence is the last resort. And so that, that's something where, again, that's not an easy conversation with a kindergartner or any student, really. But, you know, I, I hear you. Oh, Vernon, I want to talk about what you wrote because that is so incredibly true because that is the power behind the system. That white, the white suburban woman is the one who is holding up the system. Yeah, and, 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 um, and that's well known because if you look at the, the recent conversations that are leader leaders are having is all geared toward that audience that audience um, and stoking those fears um, the un, uh, the the uh, what do you call them uh, I'm trying to think of um, undercurrent the, uh, maybe 
No, the, the, the guys that are in, in or uh, the unmarked cars that um, the armed forces that are going into Oregon, for example. Oh, all the federal agents, yeah. The yeah, all those federal agents that are being put out there to to show the um, America that he's law and order president and and um, stoking those fears, like they're coming in to, to moving in our neighborhoods and then, you know, all of that. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's by design that this fear, is, um, which unfortunately can create some more Emmett Fills if we don't stop it now. And we don't want to see any more Arbery or uh, Emmett's out there. And who is the teaching population? The teaching population are white middle-class females. And yeah. so wrapping back to our very own profession, you know, it's just, it's, it's bred in the system. And I know I keep saying this, but that, like that, we need to dig down deep. We cannot continue to scratch the surface on this topic. Like I myself as a white woman have to dig down deep and figure out where did this come from? So for anyone listening who hasn't heard of the concept of Republican motherhood, I'm not talking about Republican as the Republican party, but Republican motherhood and the cult of domesticity are two topics and they are systems that were put into place in the 1800s where women became, white women became responsible for making sure that the ideals of the Republic were instilled in their families. It, it's the point in time where men were no longer, exactly, men were no longer responsible for their actions. Women, we are complicit. We have covered for long enough, and it's time for us to dig down deep and say, no more. I'm done. And I was actually reading an article today about the suffrage movement and, you know, women getting the right to, right to vote, which was mainly was white women got the right to vote, but even tracking the change that was to include women into the voting force. But as you look at the voting record or even the, the changes that have come about, it, it didn't really mark too much change. And like they're voting right along with the white men as well. And they're just upholding the, the, these same things. And so how, how do we change that? Black people don't have the voting power to change that. How, how do we change these large systems, whether that's teaching, whether that's public health, whether that's housing, neighborhoods, all of these things. Do, do Black people have the power to control it? No, it, it's really in the heart of America. And how, how do we change that moral fiber of America? That question is still raging today in 2020. And so to your question, Karen, is how do we get here? And the podcast does a great job of shifting from and really dispelling the narrative of slavery, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Barack Obama, and that's it. It sheds so much light on all of those years, all of those trials and atrocities that happened. You know, you can hear it in people's stories. And it was really through fear. It was through violent retaliation. It was through lynching. It was through legislation. And it was through the robbing of sharecroppers. And so for people that were enslaved, and thank you, Amber, for turning me on to that as well. They weren't slaves. They were people that were enslaved or enslaved people. Um, they, they became sharecroppers where they were indebted to plantation owners and they, they were given the promise of working off the land and eventually owning it, but they were never given the opportunity or you know, there weren't any fair practices to allow them to actually get out of this assumed debt. And so they, they were 
continually enslaved with, with, with debt. And the other, you know, they also use the courts. And so there's another great, um, even if you go into Wikipedia, and it was really easy to find, and I was actually shocked at how long the list is. But if you go to Wikipedia, there's a list of state by state, all of the racial laws that were actually in the books um, that had to do with segregation. And so even if you click on Maryland, you know, 1904, all railroad companies and corporations and all persons running or operating cars or coaches by steam or any railroad line or track in the state of Maryland for the transportation of passengers and are hereby required to provide separate cars or coaches for the travel and transportation of the white and colored passengers. And so these were, you know, police, policemen, police officers, judges, you know, designed a system, an elaborate system to control black life and to profit off of this concept of the nigger. And so that was something that was um, really, you know, taking place in this country for over 150 years. Um, and, you know, one of the most effective and violent tools was lynching. And, you know, there's an audio recording where, you know, they, they'd, they'd have a lynching and families would get their kids and they'd get a picnic basket and they would go out and hundreds and not if thousands of people would gather around while a black person was brutalized and murdered. And so that question of how do, how do we get here, that's not something that's erased after two years. So I think even just that the brutalization of black bodies, not taking them seriously, thinking that they're the less than attitude still exists today. And I think even though it's not, it's not lynchings, we see incarceration, we see police brutality, we see these forms still today. And so the question still remains, how do we change the moral fiber of America? Because um, Jim Crow isn't law, it's custom. And I think that's the problem that we see with racism today. It's not really law, but it's still custom in everything that we do. We see it in our schools, we see it in our neighborhoods, we see it in our public health crisis. Yeah, and Brendan, I heard you mention something about the sharecroppers and all of that. Mm -hmm. There used to be a lot more black farmers in our country. And, and even, I think we're losing them more and more because of recent, with this whole, um, the COVID relief and the loans. Um, I was watching a documentary um, recently about the, um, the black farmer, it could take up to 375 days to get a loan approved, a government loan approved where it can take the white farmer 35 days to get the loan approved. So farms are being lost. Um, lots of land is being lost and sold um, because they can't afford to keep the farms going. So the, the, the land is systematically being um, stolen as far as I'm concerned because they're not able to get the loans to keep those farms going. And it's something that's been reminiscent, you know, back when we talked about the Tulsa race massacre and you know, the, the slave, uh, the enslaved people that went on the Trail of Tears that were given uh, the, the right to own land, the, the banks came and they, they stole the land from them as well. And so these are things that are by design, like we've been saying, we recognize them, we see them, but they're still trying to have it right in front of our faces. How do we, as a collective, change those methods, change those things? Is it just money? Does money always win out? Whether you're black, white, is it just about money and we're just going to profit off of all the land? until there's nothing left. Is that the situation we're in? Or how do we, as educators, just as humans, just as Marylanders, just as, as Americans, how, how do we change the, that culture and that, that thinking? Just to jump in here, I think also off of that, I think bringing attention to the fact that 
so many of the decisions that we can choose to make will end up benefiting all people. So not just, I mean, obviously the goal is, you know, for blacks to, and people of color to feel more equal, but in truth, it will also raise, um, the financial st status and equality for all people. So the poverty that white people experience and other people in our country experience and hopefully, ideally, we redistribute that wealth from the people that are higher up. So I think getting that message across because right now Trump is very good at, but the truth is like, he's very easy to point and blame right now, but that's not always the case. I mean, obviously this has been going on before him, but he very much points to, we need to do this stuff to continue that white supremacy thought. Um, but really there's still so many white people that are suffering in poverty and dealing with issues. So if we look beyond that, how many other people will benefit in the long run? And I think just drawing attention to that would, I think hopefully help some of these people that have a different mindset. I mean, and I think- Although I think that not, um, you know, I don't want to generalize, but there are a significant amount of poor white people that don't identify with poor black people. We're just something different. They're with, they have aspirations of being wealthy and powerful like other white people. They want to be above poor black people. So I don't think that's a, a cohesive group, the two of them. Um, that's my thought on that. I listened to the podcast and twice this was mentioned. And you know, something just really strikes a nerve, but in a bad way. And there were two interviews and the answer both was, well, you know, the, the Negroes are happy. They, they're happy. They don't have to worry about land and problems. They're happy. A white person making an assessment of a race of people that are struggling and abused, but they, but they will tell you that these people are happy. And the other one was, they're happy. They have their little church and they sing those pretty songs and they got rhythm. So that has carried on into today where people of privilege want to tell people who are not privileged, but you're okay. You, you, you know, you, you, you'll be okay. And that just always strikes a nerve with me. How dare you tell anyone you know, how they feel or what their plight is when you have no idea. I, and thank you, thank you for bringing that up, Mom. That was probably one of the reasons when I first listened to this podcast, you know, maybe five, six, seven years ago. I don't remember when it was, but that was the, the example that stuck out to me and really kind of changed my perspective was the, the example of them listening to the music. And, you know, she said we would park our cars down the block we would just listen to them and oh, they just had such joy and such soul and such music. But when they asked the one guy, you know, black people were happy, were they treated less than? And he said, or were they treated fairly? And the guy said, absolutely not. Most of the houses didn't have electricity. They didn't have running water. We didn't even think about when they were done working in our homes, what they went to home and what, what they went home to at night. We didn't even consider that. And that really dispels the narrative of that they're less than human. They're, they're, they're beasts, they're, they're unintelligent, but you're bringing your whole family to sit back and listen to these soulful music and these amazing rhythms and these songs and the community and they don't have running water, they don't have electricity, but they're building worship temples and still you know, protecting their families and taking care of them without the basic necessities. And 
it, it's just so insidious. And that was something that absolutely really, um, you know, spoke to me and just something that stuck, stuck with me of really di dispelling the, the myth of that. That's just the way things were. No, it was a plan and it was to benefit off of those people. And how, how do we change that culture of hundreds of years of that? It's a struggle. And the last comment I'm going to make to you guys is what do we have if we don't have our name? And the other part of the podcast was the black uh, domestics, Susie, Susie, you know, that they just gave any old name to the help, disregarding that these people have names. We have names. And that's also the ultimate insult less than human, not important. I'll just call you any name I feel like. Fortunately, the ones that we heard stuck up <laughs> said, that's not my name. My name's Olivia. You know, my name is, you know, whatever. But the nerve to, to do that just shows arrogance and privilege. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, that's even something that's American. And we have, you know, lots of students that come from the Middle East, students that come from Africa, Nigerian. I remember in high school, we had lots of Korean kids at my school and they would always adopt an American name. And so their name would be Sungtae, but we would call him Kevin. Kevin's not his name. He chose Kevin to make it easier for us to assimilate to American culture. We didn't validate him until learn his actual name. So I think even as educators, that's something of really learning people's names and appreciating them and you know, learning why they're named those things are, are really important to validate you know, their individualism and their, their identity. I think one of the things that we can start doing personally right now um, is something that Brandy Waller-Peace mentioned, and she's the um, head of uh, Decolonizing the Music Room. Millie, can you pause that for a sec? Sorry. Um, and she said that you, like, giving credit as often as possible to those who deserve said credit. Like if you got an idea from someone, then give them credit. If you have a quote from someone, give them credit. If someone does work, give them credit and pay them. Absolutely, and so that, that's validating people's work as well. And that's something that you know we're, we're, we're learning now, a lot of this anti-racism work, we look at who's being featured and who's being celebrated and who's being you know, bought upon for speaking engagements and things like that and it's, we need to acknowledge that there are black women that have been doing this work for decades. Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings, you know, Vernon turned me on to her. I've been, you know, reading through her books the past couple of weeks. And it's just, so we need to, I agree with you, Erica, we need to make sure that we're giving credit where credit's due, but also acknowledging a lot of these educators that have been doing this work for years. Yeah, for example, like Dr. Janet Helms, who's a psychologist, she's been doing stuff on white identity development and white fragility for years, long before Robin DiFrangelico. So I always tell people to, you can read white fragility, but read um, Dr. Janet Helms' work, and she has a book out about, you know, race is a good thing to have. So, and she's been doing, um, she's a scholar in racial identity development and she's been doing this for at least 30, 40 years. And the other topic we need to talk about is the internalized oppression. That because the, the members of our society who are identified as black, they internalize this, this stuff too. And can buy into the same narrative because it's constantly shoved down people's throats. And it's important to have 
a reflection that is reflecting something the opposite of that because kids are on screens, they're on TVs, they're listening to music. And so if they, they can buy into those stereotypes, you don't have that sort of that image that that model in your, in your life, whether that's a parent, an extended family member, a teacher, a coach, a neighbor, a friend, someone, you know, to, to, aff to affirm your blackness, to affirm your identity. I, I think that's what a lot of kids are missing and they're not getting at, at schools. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you, Karen. And so, so then the, la the last part of it really get, is probably the most interesting part, which we kind of already touched on, is sort of hearing not just from, you know, former enslaved people or the descendants of former enslaved people, but also sort of the descendants of plantation owners and sort of kind of how my mom was just describing how, you know, that's just the way things were. Black people were happy. They didn't have any concern. They didn't have any problems. They knew where their bread was buttered it was with white people. And, you know, another, you know, interesting thing that I, I was thinking about, and I think someone put in the chat in terms of uh, parent-teacher relationship, was a, a woman on the recording was saying, you know, the lady that I work for, she really believes that I like her. She thinks that we're friends. When I go home, I don't think about her any more than I think about anything else because she, you know, I work for her and she doesn't treat me well at all. And I think about how many interactions we have that as educators with parents that are in our buildings for maybe a few hours in the whole school year, the interactions that we have, that maybe the perception of, yeah, that parent really likes me, that I'm really doing a good job. And meanwhile, that parent is just like, I cannot wait until the class of the year is over. And so how do we really enrich or find out the truth in those conversations and make sure that they're powerful and meaningful um, when we interact with the community? So that, that was something that stuck out to me of my perception of how the conversation went could be very different from the reality of how that conversation went. And how do we make sure that we are really having these positive relationships and communications with uh, parents of our students? Because that's going to be really important as we go into virtual learning. I, I um, think that that kind of, to me, kind of bounces off what Karen was saying. So just asking the question, you know, uh, how did you feel about what we're offering or what we're providing? Um, because if you are used to, uh, whether you're black or non-black, kind of accepting that people of color are kind of, you know, less than, whether they have less, feel less, are less, whatever kind of the, the feeling is, um, you know, they're going to have certain concerns and, and things that uh, they may expect from teachers. Uh, you know, so, hey, I want to make sure that my black kid does better than I did, you know, in education, or I want to make sure that they get more out of their educational experience than I did. So uh, to me, it's just asking, uh, you know, what are some of your expectations or, you know, what what can I do to help you guys feel good about education in your household? Yeah, and I think that's also removing the assumption from teachers that we know what's best and so we're providing you with what you need rather than it being a collaborative effort of here's what I can do here's what you need let's get on the same page to figure out what's, what's best for students um, and so, so I think that that's a great point I want to be as proactive as possible as well because we often expect parent communication after something occurs but why can't we have that communication before something occurs because we work to plan so it would be i think in our best and their best uh success if we include them in that planning 
Yeah, I agree. Anybody else want to jump in? So yeah, we have the Padlet up. If you have any resources, I know there's been a lot of good resources in the chat. Please add them to the Padlet. You can get the Padlet on the Pen Talk podcast website. Um, it's on Wix, W-I-X-S-I-T-E. And so, so the last thing that I wanted to talk about was, you know, still saying that section of, you know, life wasn't that bad. Um, but also one of the things that they talked about was not dwelling on the past, that slavery is over, Jim Crow is over, and that talking about it, dwelling on the past is harmful psychologically, socially, and that that's going to hold blacks down. And I feel like that, that sentiment, maybe while not that blatant, could be brought up now of all of this anti-racist work, all of this abolitionist work, you know, not, maybe not right now. Maybe it, that, that's in the past. Racism is over. We had Obama's president. Everything's fine. Let's just focus on virtual learning. How do we continue to change that fabric and continue to push the conversation and do that important introspective work, that reflection that we need, rather than how do we... This is the question we always talk about. How do we call in versus call out? How do we make sure that people are having these conversations and it's not just, well, it's not that bad. We've got to get back to school. Kids have school's great. Every kid loves school. We know that's not the case. How do we make sure that we're being honest and that we're creating a, a positive environment for our students? Oh, I do. Keep pushing this conversation of anti-racist work that needs to be uh, done by every teacher. Any thoughts on that? Because that's something that through 13 episodes, I'm still not 100% sure of how do we present this conversation um, and not have more of the call out versus the call in, because the call in is important. For me, I think it's easier with students. Um, I believe relationships are so important, which we've discussed about so many times. Um, I think that also is key with adults, but personally speaking, I find the relationship part a lot harder with adults than with students, because like you said, the call in versus call out. Um, but I also think, you know, like with anything, by modeling those relationships with kids, hopefully teachers pick up on that and realize that, but I also know that that doesn't happen either. So obviously I'm open to hearing what people say, but I believe relationships is key to most things. I, I kind of agree with that also. Um, I, that was a difficult one when you're dealing with colleagues, but I, I do believe in leading by example and um, doing the work on yourself and, and starting with the students and hopefully others would see that, see that change. So is that a change harder because as adults, we have formed opinions and we just, we, we don't have that real integration? It has segregation caused generational disillusionment? Do we work together, but we actually really don't know each other and we're not invested in trying to truly know each other outside of that professional setting? Is that something that we all suffer from and just isn't a, a part of our lives, we're just too separate, or is that something that we can overcome um, living in different counties, different parts of the state, and all working together? Or is that just something that we can't overcome? That that's something where looking at James Baldwin, learning about redlining and blockbusting, and sort of the, so the cultural perspective of we, we don't have an integrated society. We do live in 
certain areas. If you live in certain towns, there's lots of connotations. People know what you mean. Oh, you live in Owings Mills. Oh, you live in Randallstown. Oh, you live in the Hereford zone. I mean, people know what that stuff means. And so is that something that we can overcome and, you know, build a, an integrated society? I'm talking about schools, a school community that way, or it, it, are these systems of oppression just too over, too large to overcome? They are not too large to overcome. Um, I think, I'm going to try to keep it brief, but I think that um, one, one thing that I talk to my friends about this with, um, obviously, black people know that there's racism. You know, some white people do, some white people are learning that. But I think we have to realize that we also don't really know. Uh, we're still, as younger people, we're still learning how bad and how systemic some of this stuff is. So every week on this podcast, I learned something new. And, you know, I've been black all my life, but I didn't know, like, how, uh, you know, the how legal Jim Crow was or how, um, you know, like systemic was. some of those things. Right, you know, so some of that I have to learn and, uh, like, internalize and, you know, some of the jokes that, that black people know they make about each other as that may have been in the past, our way to kind of deal with oppression. But now it's kind of like, oh, well, this is not funny. You know, uh, home ownership in the black community has not improved any since 1968. So that's something that I didn't know until this year. So now I'm like, man, we need to, to rally together. We need to figure out what's going on. Is it still oppression? Is it just so many years of general generational wealth? That have not been passed down, um, but we definitely need to uh, like just be aware that okay, situation's bad, <laughs> and we got to move forward now. So working with our allies and kind of stepping over the ones that are not our allies to to get stuff done. And I think I, I agree, and as I've been black all my life, and I didn't know that. The Native Americans had slaves. I didn't know that black teachers weren't involved in the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And so these are the things that we're continuing, you know, to educate ourselves on. And that, that, that's a great point that it's we, we need to really learn. We're continuing to learn all of these things and how to truly deal with a lot of these issues and not live behind the veil, not laugh through our pain, but actually deal with these issues. Um, but, but I think, and Karen brings up the great point she brings up every week is, you know, a lot of this work is it rests with white people and that a lot of the change that's going to happen is on white educators and white politicians because they're making up the majority and they're the ones that are listening to their majority constituents and so again again as, as black people we continue to educate ourselves we continue to affirm blackness and now we're, we're just reaching out for allies and abolitionists who can join us to change the system um does anybody else want to leave any other final thoughts um i I was thinking about what Vernon and Sarah said in terms of how um, it starts with relationships with students. And I know something that I teach elementary school and something I really, really try to model is curiosity and curiosity in learning about something I don't understand and telling them, oh, I don't know the answer to that and let's find out. And I think I try to, I know I try to model it as well when it comes to my students and um, when you were talking about, you know, we work next to each other, but do we really understand each other? I know what my hope is, is just kind of bringing that curiosity 
to the kids and maybe spreading it to adults as well. And I, I think a lot of um, quote unquote good white people would be like, no, I'm not racist and I, I have black friends, but I, I, I don't know if those same people would be interested in hearing the true valid experiences of those people that they would call their friends and if they would be comfortable sitting with you know that feeling of discomfort and i think modeling that curiosity and learning more and having those kind of hard conversations and showing kids that it is okay to be wrong and you can course correct without it being the end of the world and it's important to listen to what people have to say even if it's hard for you personally to hear it i know that is a huge part of how i treat all my students and hopefully instilling them a sense of just basic curiosity not just you know in learning more about content but about each other and getting comfortable sitting in discomfort of you know being wrong and learning more about it and digging into that a little bit more without um instinctively shying away from it. And that, that, that's I'm a not point an there. educator, but, you know, as a mother or being around children, children aren't your issue. A, a child will ask a question and it'll take you off guard, but you can figure out how to answer it. And one question leads to another. I think you all as educators will figure out how to address these issues with children of all ages your challenges your co-workers doing this without conflict um those that don't want to hear it so i don't i don't think your biggest issue is going to be with your students it's definitely going to be with your white co-workers that don't want to hear it and or that you do have that you're brave enough to stand your ground or correct them that's the greater challenge because I think a child is not as intimidating to you as your coworkers, your family. So that's I think where your your greater battle will be. Uh, I think that um, the challenge is going to be twofold. The challenge is going to be from um, white coworkers who are hesitant to join this journey. It's also going to be challenging for black educators who have internalized this white supremacist structure as well, who manifest their internalization through fear and passivity. Um, Malcolm X has a great quote, and it says, power concedes nothing without force. So there's gonna be, there's gonna have to be a lot of push and pull for both sides. And, and it is going to be uncomfortable and at times confrontational. But if we keep the kids' interests and their success at the forefront of whatever we do, that's what's really, truly important. I, I totally agree. Thank you for sharing that. And so the work continues. And so I appreciate everyone joining us tonight on this episode of Pen Talk, the podcast. Um, you can listen to all episodes on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcast. You can watch all of our videos on Facebook, on Pen Talk the Podcast Facebook page, or you can visit our website at pentalkpodcast.wixsite.com slash home. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening.